0: Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at BuiltByscott by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Langston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is now completely virtual. This amazing operating system that brings the worlds of therapy and performance together in one powerful package can now be digested from the comfort of your home or personal workspace. Reconditioning is about unleashing the human in human performance. It's about understanding why you or your clients are not performing or living your best life and giving you and your clients the skills for optimal performance. Our courses, r 1 Foundations and our 2 Designs take you through a complete process in assessment and intervention. Our rec- Reconditioning specialist mentorship pulls everything together in your operating context and our landmark program, Empower You, helps you navigate your own life so you can be your very best. For more information about reconditioning courses and programs, head over to reconditioninghq.com and use the coupon code LYM50 for $50 off the price of any one of our empowering courses. Most recently, Matrix Fitness Canada partnered with Playball Academy Canada and Kitchener, Ontario to create the Matrix Conditioning Center. The Matrix Conditioning Center within the facility provides PBA athletes and coaches access to the best and most current conditioning tools to support their development. By combining the Matrix research on product usage with customized needs of the coaches, simple performance metrics are being developed in a body-friendly and progressive way. It is a hybrid model combining high-performance metric analysis with coach-friendly opportunities speed training sprint mechanics coaching metabolic conditioning warm-up and cool-down are all some of the examples of how these tools are being used play ball academy canada was established in 2014 and has developed into one of the premier indoor baseball training facilities in the country from grassroots player and skill development to the pro level the facility and its programming continue to evolve and grow Matrix Fitness is a global brand of fitness equipment that serves exercisers and operators from all corners of the globe. When it comes to sport performance, Matrix Portfolio continues to grow through its partnership with amateur and professional sports organizations globally. To get more information on how Matrix Fitness can customize something for your team, contact Matrix directly at greg.lawler at matrixfitness.com and tell them Leave Your Mark sent you. I'm excited to announce our newest sponsor, Push. Whether you're coaching your athletes from the gym or remotely, The Push Pro System allows you to make meaningful training progress no matter where you are. The Push Pro System is the only coaching solution that empowers over 5,000 coaches to plan, track, assess, and improve athlete performance using real-time velocity data in one integrated system. Now, for a limited time, you can get 15% off any Push Pro System if you use the discount code PUSHPRO15. Just head to the Push website at www.trainwithpush.com forward slash performance and use the discount code pushpro15 to get 15% off your push pro system welcome Kelly nice to see you again sir welcome Jeff good to see you sir as well and always good to see my lovely <laughs> wife I thought Dan was going to hang out Is Dan are you going to come yeah, on this, out out
1: with this as well yep we might just be getting a bit of
0: refreshments <clears throat> beautiful so um I appreciate being asked to host this, and I'm really looking forward to the conversation and coming off the back of what Dan just presented to everybody. I wanna sort of ballpark um, the topic in the sense that what it means to each of the people who are on here. And sometimes it means different things. Uh, And I have my own meaning or construct, which I'll maybe swing back in or add at the back end. But we've heard what uh, Dan expressed as the, the, the living screen concept that they use at Altus. I'll go to Kelly maybe first. If you want to sort of tell me, Kelly, or tell the group, what does screening, when you say the word screening, what does it mean to you and how do you sort of employ that in your practice?
1: Here we go. We got sound. We got you. So I think the key concept here, first of all, for the coach, but more importantly as the athlete, is to make the invisible visible. How do we understand what we're seeing? And as soon as we have you know, complex movement behavior, which is very much a living dynamic, you know, situation, right? Have an athlete compete in a race, jump on a flight, come back home. That's a different person stepping onto the track or stepping into the weight room. And a lot of what we're trying to do, again, is get to the point quick, quicker. How can we see these changes in position, changes in mechanics, understand them, and apply the appropriate intervention to restore what I think is normative range. Because what we know is that, you know, as we try to untangle this Gordian knot, um, taking a snapshot of someone early in the season, putting it in a drawer and that coming back to it is a little bit too far away from, from making sort of meaningful understanding and having the athlete understand and sort of get better, do a better job of committing themselves to understanding how they're feeling as it relates to how they're moving. So, you know, fundamentally I've spent most of my time not on the track, because that's not my expertise, is running a parallel diagnostic plan, which turns out to be in the gym. So most athletes I work with or see or in the institutions and and teams that we work with end up training in a gym formally. And that ends up being a really easy place to understand the components of complex movements and to be able to restore and fix one thing or improve some aspect of that and then put the athlete back out. And hopefully you have a coach like Dan or Stu or any of the staff who is really good at understanding what they're seeing and taking the actual sport into intervention. That would be the ideal. But for the rest of us mere mortals, sometimes it's a lot easier to understand what's happening in the gym in real time. So every time we walk into the gym, we have a chance to understand and improve positions.
0: Nice. I'm going to swing back and elaborate on your construct in a couple of seconds. But with Jeff, I'll go to Jeff. Like you, you are a Cairo uh, by trade and obviously have a clinical practice, but you also have a strength conditioning practice. When you sort of hear what Dan talked about and what Kelly just s- set up, do you look at screening from a different perspective or does it uh, walk into your assessment process? How do you marry those things and how do you sort of differentiate them in, in some sense?
2: Yeah, I think, um, I guess to piggyback off what Kelly was saying, um, in my opinion, if we're going to simplify it to its most foundational concept, for me, it's a nonverbal movement screening would be a nonverbal way of seeing or asking an athlete how they're feeling. So, um, but in order for us to get there, there's a lot of observation, observation. So, um, I was thinking about this the other day, and in a way, selfishly, I think movement screening is is no different than um, an exercising core competencies that a PhD uh, graduate would would uh, would do in in their in their in their educational um, process. So, so for example, the way I looked at movement screening when I first started doing it versus the way I look at movement screening now, I feel like. If any, if movement screening benefited anybody, it benefited me as a clinician and as a, uh, a strength person uh, in terms of understanding how how the way um, bodies move, how the way athletes perform, and so on and so forth. So, I, I feel like, uh, you know, how to answer your question. In a way, movement screening is 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 a means to to see how an athlete's doing physically, mentally, emotionally, and it's just a nonverbal way. Cause they, they might say something different, but if, if you're, if you're observing and you're observing with intent, then you're, you're certainly going to be able to to pick, pick up the little nuances with, with how they're doing.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that kind of, uh, pivots me a little bit because uh, just in sharing m- my viewpoint is I find sometimes the language of screening versus assessment gets kind of commingled. To me, um, the concept of screening is to alert us to something we may want to inquire more about or dis- make a decision that we're going to move forward with what our intervention originally was going to be to layer in information that's going to be determinant of whether we want to look deeper or not with that given athlete in front of us or a client in front of us so if i go to jamie for a second like you know i know our process but when you look at somebody um what are what is informing you when you first come in to decide i'm just going to train them today or i'm going to actually intervene and get invested in doing something different than i was originally planning to do
3: Yeah, well, I think um, movement is really always going to be assessed, you know, like everybody's been talking about this whole time. And as Dan just did a wonderful, obviously, um, presentation on that is um, movement is something that just is always going to be assessed from A to Z uh, in the beginning. So, um, if somebody comes in and presents, I'm automatically already going to be having that eye to Jeff's point, it's a nonverbal idea as, as to how this person's feeling and whether they're prepared or not. You know, you can check their affect, you can check their motions. you know, whether their gait isn't great. You know, you start doing a warm-up, as Dan explained, and watch them um, as they move. And as you're doing that assessment or that screen, you can decide whether you do like or don't like or and or in conjunction with your client they can see whether or not they're feeling well and then you guys can both make a good determination as to "Mm, maybe today we have to cut it at the past let's go off to the side let's pivot for a little maybe do some damage control before something gets better and then integrate back into your plan but not to be so focused on what your plan was but to be focused on what is being presented in that moment and that snapshot and not being so dogmatic about it.
0: Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Kelly, um, you know Dan presented, and obviously sprinting is is something that's been evaluated, looked at for a long time in history, and we have sort of a, a relative understanding of what we 're looking for from an ideal perspective, maybe what we see in in real time and what we like or dislike. I'm curious in your process when you're looking at a new athlete doing a new action that maybe you're not as familiar with or what have you, how do you take the process that you use maybe as a script in essence um, to to look at that athlete and then sort of overlay it in a new template to an athlete who maybe does something completely different like we saw um, you know rich did the presentation before about agility so now we have a multi-directional athlete that's cutting running how are you taking what you're inferring from this process and layering it into something more complex than even sprinting
1: such a good question because underlying this i think are some assumptions that we should talk about one is where is the intervention going to happen does the intervention end up taking place if i identify something i'm not liking or a leakage or the language we use as compensation where is that going to be you know understood or addressed so first and foremost you know all good models and the altus model is a good one it explains current phenomenon It predicts future phenomenon and it's easily communicated. So whatever assessment language you're using, whatever movements you're moving, we really want to ask that. Like, why is the athlete moving this way? You know, how will they move at increased speeds or under, under fatigue? What, what is it they're saying is predicting when they, when they at the end of a session, what are we going to look like? And then how do we easily communicate all those things? So again, this is the heart of what we need to do and then match that with, where can we have these interventions? Is there a table right next to it? How much of this does the athlete own? What is the movement habitus? You know, are they, are they showing up at the track or in the site and expecting to get from zero to 60 in that 10 minutes of you know, movement prep? Um, you know, one of the things that I would want everyone to ask is, you know, Again, for me, the whole, we've said before, even in all tests, if mechanics are the heart of every good system, what are the components to mechanics? so as you're as you're beginning to develop your coach's eye, having um, some benchmarks of understanding key key components, so that you can understand what compensation looks like. And the easiest way to begin to understand compensation or someone expressing because they're unskilled or doesn't have access to a position, those two things are are typically what's going on, is that we start to see that the athlete – will predictably start to work around the problem. You'll see a foot turnout. You'll see an arch collapse, right? You'll start to see more sort of wasted, you know, less economy of emotion. You'll, emotion, you'll start to see twisting. You'll start to see sh- shoulders translate forward. So really understanding for us some of those components really ends up being easier again as a new coach in the gym because the foundations of these positions, we're going to see that most athletes are engaging in some kind of squatting or some kind of hinging activities where it's easier to see those components express themselves as incomplete range of motion or as a compensated pattern. And then we would expect to see those compensation patterns later on. So one of the things that I want to ask The people who are listening, is what would your essential movements be to express enough range of motion for your athlete to do their sport? So what movements are you training? And in there, we can then take the strength conditioning cycle, the components, and say it's not just about physiology. My athletes get faster. My athletes get stronger. My athletes get bigger. But you know, are they able to express these good technical applications of their bodies in this correlate movement language? And so suddenly it's really easy for people to understand. If someone has incomplete overhead function, it doesn't mean we're not going to train. They may get landmine pressing today. But it also means, hey, that could be a, a beginning even exploration around... You know, dorsiflexion or enough breathing capacity. You know, uh, Stu and I had a a long conversation a long time ago because he was like, "Hey, look, I'm sick of this language of like we're obsessed with dorsiflexion." I was like, "Couldn't couldn't agree more." And how much dorsiflexion does a as a sprinter need. The answer is enough to be able to engage in activities of daily living without horrible compensation, the training to be able to do the actual sport and enough dorsiflexion that when they're actually doing their sport, you're not seeing increased compensation of the athlete working around that problem. So when you backfill into that, suddenly it's much easier to understand what those components look like. And you start to build a mental map of how the athlete's moving in real speed and real time and how they're moving in the gym, which is a controlled environment sort of simplified into specific movement actions.
0: Nice. Dan, are you still there or not? uh, Your video there, buddy? Yeah. Yeah. Before I go to Jeff and come back to Jamie, I, I just wanted to sort of differentiate when you're, first seeing a new athlete and when you've seen an athlete, you know, many, many times. So when you're first seeing a new athlete, you know, obviously you have a more, you're going to have a more robust process than you would the the athlete you're seeing on a daily basis and you're comfortable with. So in that initial assessment or, uh, you know, look look at the athlete, how do you sort of determine um, whether you're going to like, I like what I see, and therefore, or I feel that what it is, is is a movement anomaly given the nature of this individual in front of me. And I'm just going to let things flow and I'm going to see how the training goes versus this doesn't look right to me. And I'm going to actually intervene right away because this isn't, this isn't good. Uh, because I can see, you know, when you're seeing somebody on a regular basis, uh, you start to get to know the, the athlete. But when you're getting to know them, what's, how does your process differ?
4: Well, for me, it starts with the warm-up. So the the warm-up is very consistent in terms of task. It's multidimensional. It has variance in speeds and forces and angles and whatnot. So it's kind of a movement literacy warm-up, if you will, with layers of literacy. And so through time... No matter what stage of development, gender, geographic location, sport specificity, there's certain essentials and postures and movement expressions, like Kelly was talking about hinging and squatting and so on and so forth. So you've got this map of what the norm is. And in my talk, I talked about bandwidth. So through time, we know that athletes in that bandwidth – generally are okay to progress forward. When they get outside that bandwidth, now the red flags start popping. So one standard deviation out of the bandwidth for low force, low velocity may not be a factor, but a half a standard deviation out of the bandwidth on a high velocity or rapid change in direction task could be fatal. So some of it's specific to task going forward. But I think most clinicians and coaches have fundamental models for different postures, movement expression, timing, you know, symmetries. Yeah. Every world-class sprinter is asymmetrical stride length, but there's a bandwidth, you know, it's generally 10 to 20 centimeters difference. They get 40 centimeters too long on one side. You've got a big problem. So, For me, it's understanding bandwidth on movement. Literacy is a foundation of of Mm screen. Jeff, um, you know, when
0: you go into your process, when you are deciding to make the um, move towards doing something as a physical intervention, in other words, you want to change some, whether it's tissue tension, uh, etc., with an intervention of some sort, what are your... Uh, rules of thumb as to I should or shouldn't do this today, based on you know what what cycle of training we're in, whether it's pre competitive event. Uh, you know where where do you implicate or not Im- implicate uh, those treatment um, attacks, so to speak, uh, based on your own you know a, a, a approach or or your history or expertise
2: yeah absolutely i think the the probably in my opinion the most important part of, to that is um being present with being present within the daily training environment so for example, if I'm working on the track
1: on the on the
2: so so for example if I'm working on the track um if I'm only there once a month, I don't understand context i don't know context I'm seeing what I'm seeing, but it's relevance. It could be anyone's guess now, if I'm there every day i can I can understand and appreciate the bandwidth that Dan was just mentioning. I could appreciate you know if an athlete is within the middle on one end or on the other end so So the model within my head is in order to uh to have this model, you obviously have to be present and present on a regular basis so uh the, the what works through my head in answering your question, and when do I intervene first, I need to know know what I'm seeing. And, and that goes hand in hand with me as a clinician, um, or performance therapist. I need to be able to, um, be there regularly speak with the coaches that I'm working with, understand what tasks and demands are are required in the sport rather than my personal biases as a clinician or what we learned in an anatomy class. Um, so I need to know what I'm seeing and then from what I am seeing, I need to know what I'm not seeing. So, and then that, that goes hand in hand with, again, what is this bandwidth that the athlete comes in with on a regular basis and how far or how far off of it on one end or how far off of it on the other hand, on the other end are, are they at? But then I also have to ask myself because I am there every day or on a regular basis, well, what is the context? So for example, with, Um, This morning, I I came into work, a bunch of hockey players. They had a game last night. Some of them are beat up this morning. They have a game tonight. Am I going to intervene like I normally do? I know with one athlete that I work with, usually it takes one to two days for my treatment interventions to simmer before they feel, quote-unquote, normal again. With another athlete, I I can perform... Uh, whether it be soft tissue work and adjustment, mobilization, whatever, and they'll be fine right away. So I think um, in order for for me to know what I need to do, I almost have to have an accumulation of experiences to be able to decide accurately. Um, So it's know what I'm seeing, know what what I'm not seeing, and then know how I can see or, or sort of know what I can do to get what I would like to see and then intervene and then do so that they can, they can get what they need on a consistent basis. So uh, theoretical, of course, but I think the most important answer to your question is for me to decide what I want to do, I have to have X number of observations before I can understand the context with what they're presenting with in order to be be able to act accordingly and with minimal side effect.
0: The Push Pro system is your all-in-one coaching solution used by professional sports teams in every major league globally. The system includes portal, an online data management system that helps you program sessions faster, the Push Band 2.0, a wearable accelerometer that tracks key performance metrics, and the Push app that lets you see the velocity and power of each rep in real time. Now, for a limited time, you can get 15% off any Push Pro system if you use the discount code PUSHPRO15. Just head to the Push website at www.trainwithpush.com for and use the discount code PUSHPRO15 to get 15% off your PUSHPRO system. Matrix Fitness is a global brand of exercise equipment managed locally in the countries it serves. In Canada, Matrix Fitness has 56 employees, 4 offices, a technical support team across Canada, covering all regions and serving some of the biggest fitness and hospitality brands in your community. In 2021, Matrix will celebrate its 20th anniversary and 6th year within Canada. An emerging market for Matrix is its sport performance and athletic training portfolio. While Matrix Fitness has gained significant momentum in the fitness market, strength and conditioning is evolving, and for that, they need to collaborate with some good people. In the second half of 2020, Matrix launched its own Canadian Ambassador Program, a partnership that looks to do exactly that, work with good people who serve athletes. This is an opportunity to be part of a growing and emerging brand in the ever changing industry of sport performance. For more information on their ambassador program and exploring the details of how it might work for you, please contact the Vice President of Business Development, Greg Lawler. Please reference the Leave Your Mark podcast and reach out to Greg at greg.lawler at matrixfitness.com. To play off this, this conversation a little bit with Jamie. You see a lot of different kinds of athletes, whether it's divers, uh, judokas, uh, you know, um, name that tune. Of athletes. So, going back to what I asked, Dan, like, how do you? What informs you in the beginning when you start to look at an athlete, like a diver? Um, you know, about what the what it is they actually do with their body.
3: Well, it was funny you were going to say that because, i you know, I I love a little bit of the vein going through here and talking about the physical literacy, literacy right? And um, there are certain motions that are going to be required and necessary that are base motions for any sport, um, but. I would argue that certain sports require certain, certain base exercises. So um, I like to understand the needs analysis of a motion. To Dan's point, I might go and video some competitive sport back to even what Nick was saying in his thing. I'm going to thin slice it and break it down and see what the difference is between my rock climber versus my diver versus my this. And when I go to assess them and do my screen and my movement screen, I'm going to make sure, one, do they have the capability in all the areas that they need to have the capability to do that? And then, of course, do they have the capacity and you know back to kelly's point you know is it something where it's just sort of a neurocoordinative thing that they're just not doing it very well or is it that they actually don't have the capacity to get there in which case i'm going to go and dive in according to the contextual realities of that athlete it's not just because they're an athlete that Everybody needs to move the same, you know. If I have a if I have a strong man versus a Cirque du Soleil athlete, I'm going to approach it very differently. But the principles are still the same. I'm going to understand the needs analysis. I'm going to know what the big chunks are. I'm going to make sure they have the capability, and that's where I'm going to begin.
1: Nice. If I might jump in, yeah, go ahead, go right ahead. I love this conversation. And one of the things that I think it's really easy to do as we're, cause everyone is like, Hey, I want to improve the athlete. I want to leave the ball in a better place. I want to improve the ball. One of the things that it's really easy to do is to end up in some, you know, if you are not the primary coach in a proverbial pissing match or a, a tug of war, or you're messing with something. So what I, one of the things I hear, and I just want to reiterate is context matters and how closely you are to the system matters. So, you know, in my experience, I I people send me athletes to try to untangle, and I've been doing that just like Lingusons for a long, long time where I get to see a real great diversity um, and, and complexity in the movements of the athletes I'm, I'm seeing. One of the things that has worked really well is that I don't ever engage in – pitching mechanics conversations with my Cy Young award winners that really sort of, I appreciate that their level of expertise and their pitching coaches or their running coaches are really the ones who are working on technique. My job is to give that athlete the building blocks to then be able to go be coached. So in terms of, you know, obviously we have a whole bunch of mental environmental behavior so an athlete is ready for coaching, ready for the session. And what I'm trying to do is give that athlete the physical movement, mechanical literacy, just the bandwidth availability to be able to go express that. So my experience has been if I continue to understand what the root position's these kinogram slices of the shapes are, then I always have a correlate movement in the training environment. And when I mean training environment, I'm talking about the gym environment in which I can see overhead positioning, arm swing, internal rotation, the components to the things we're after. What that means is then I can dovetail or really do a better job of improving the mechanics because it's really easy to understand compensation in the gym and to slow it down into. And so suddenly I have this really tightly coupled feedback mechanism. For benching, I'm working on improving my athlete's bench. And so what's nice about that is that I'm going to get better shoulder function, and that athlete will suck that information up and go express it without me having to necessarily connect the dots. And so the feedback I get from coaches is, hey, I don't know what you're doing, but this athlete was really easy to coach, and she was able to do the things that I asked her to do. And then the following is like, what did you do? And I was like, well, we worked on kettlebell swings and front squats and presses and push jerks and the formal language of all good formal strength and conditioning. So, you know, it's not that every single athlete needs to deadlift heavy, but boy, it's really easy to understand if they can't hinge over to get into lift position, why that may be affecting their start in the blocks. We start to see those relationships. If an athlete is missing hip extension and doesn't load that anterior line in the training, what do I expect when I see that athlete at speed during their sport? I'm going to see the same thing. So for us, it's been really useful to keep the movement diagnostic language tightly coupled inside the gym environment. And then I can talk about improving the language of the training movements that we're using to to support the sports, to support the sports preparation or the sports specific training. And then that also gives me... Tightly coupled feedback mechanisms would better say worse, more decreased session costs, et cetera. Then the athlete goes back and is more capable of having, being able to do the movement language, the warm ups, the cool downs, the, the things that their actual coaches are requiring them. And that for me has been a, a very nice way of st- letting my master coaches of their sports do their job and me preparing the athlete to be coached. Can I
3: just add something off of that? I love that, Kelly. Is One, it just made me really think about the whole idea that as our job as coaches is not about perfecting movement. We're not there, like that's what the technical coaches are there to do is to maybe make that bandwidth, as Dan was saying, a little bit more concise so that, you know, maybe the, um, the execution is going to be that much more consistent perhaps. And that's what's going to translate into performance. But this whole idea of perfecting movement, that's not what it's about. It's, we always, we use the analogy that it's an, our client is an artist. And if they're a painter and they want to paint a painting, when we look at their color palette, they might actually have colors that they want to use that aren't available to them. And if they get into that sport and they're stuck in a scenario and they needed that color and they don't have it, that's when catastrophe happens. So our job is to get them involved in having access to those colors. It doesn't have to be to the nth degree, just have access so that when they need to find the solution, when it's required, they have availability to it. To your point, now the coaches can coach them easier, and that's our job. It's opening that up to them, that palette up to them, not trying to be perfect with that motion in any way.
1: And if I might just add, one of the things that Jeff said that's really great is, you know, commenting and hammering on this context, is that traditionally the therapeutic intervention world has happened out of context. An athlete is on fire. They're in pain. They can no longer perform their sport or do their thing. So now they go into a sort of a subset, you know, correlate universe. I know that we speak English in our ch- sport, but our, our rehab is in classic Greek and our athlete doesn't understand the connection, right? It, we're, we're getting interventions that end up making the, the sort of athlete's laundry list of work really busy. So now the athlete has to do all of this work and then has to do all this rehab work. And and there's a lot of just wasted efficiency there. So it's really important that the, the performance coach speaks the movement language, the diagnostic language. That's crucial and has a basic set of interventions to improve their athlete's position because that is ultimately what a coach does is allows the expression of positions through sport and movement. On the other side, it's vital that the, that the therapist or the intervention, even if they're doing manual only manual work, speaks strength and conditioning well enough to be able to articulate and speak that language and be working with those athletes. better if the strength coach is also a physio or also a chiro or also a mechanist so that there's a Venn diagram of this is my area, this is your area, but they overlap greatly. And what we start to see is that both – what Coaching groups really understand the movement kinetics of the of the athlete, and we start to we stop doing this and this and this with the support. And pretty soon, it's really easy when something starts to change. An athlete can see it; it's expressed in the language. The athlete, the coach can coach the movement drills to get the athlete back in what they want to do.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would just add to play off of that, uh, Kelly, that you know we we like to talk in our process a little bit about the differentiation between what we like to call hardware issues versus software issues. And at the end of the day, a hardware issue, do we have uh tissue restriction in some way, shape or form? And I kind of dose it down to, Real hardware issues are the morphological anomalies, the scar, the true scar tissue from surgical uh, fractures, etc. These things that really they're hard stops. Then you have all this soft tissue stuff that has all kinds of different uh, animal reasons for being there. And what we don't often do um, in the practitioner world is actually get get into the deep dirties of why it's there. And and there's a kind of a you know a nice feeling about hey I, I. I go in, I use my techni- technique, et cetera. I loosen something up, I release something, and somebody feels like they can move better. But fundamentally, making them move better may be actually detrimental. If they can't actually control that motion, they don't own that motion, they can't – You. Know, they basically, you've just opened up this cat's meow of, of possibilities, which may or may not be advantageous. So I, I kind of have two questions going into Dan and then into Jeff is – one, for Dan, what I would like to know from you is when you found that somebody has what I describe as a true hardware issue, i.e. they don't have enough dorsiflexion to do what it is they need to do, or they don't have enough hip flexion to do what it is they need to do, but they're still doing it. How have you created workarounds in that, or how do you strategize workarounds when you've got an elite athlete that needs to compete, but, they've, but that, that element has been taken away from them?
4: Well, that's where we segue into what we call plan B. So depending on how far out of bounds from their normal movement map or acceptable movement map are, so we may go to an abridgment of gait, for example. So like Greg Ruff, the Olympic long jump champion, at the end of his career, most of his running sessions were some form of dribbling. Because if he went to bigger ranges at higher forces and velocities, the injury risk was just exponential. So it's kind of a a mastery of coaching, if you will, is what can we do with plan B when we're this much out of bounds? Or if we're this much out of bounds, plan B is not even an option. we got to go to plan C. But that's also layered. So it's a layered process. Is there some therapeutic intervention we can do before warm-up or after warm-up or between runs? So like Donovan Bailey, for example, was famous like on high-speed workouts. We took 30 minutes between runs. It wasn't for biochemistry. We needed that time to intervene on his body to enable him to do the next run at a high level of output and reduce risk. Beautiful.
0: Jeff, when, um, let's say we're talking about, you know, not real hardware where we've got scar tissue or something that's actually a a morphological restriction, but we've got soft tissue stuff. When do you like, it kind of comes back to the earlier question I asked you, but, in that in terms of that intervention, um, what's what are you thinking about in terms of the ownership of that intervention? In other words, you release something, you open something up, what do you then do to make sure that that person owns that or they can produce what it is you're actually trying to change? Um, for me,
2: the, for the phrase that always pops up into my head is as little as necessary. And then the second phrase that pops up into my head is what's the downstream effect of what I'm going to do. So, so for example, if I am going to intervene with my hands, um, what, what potential effect, you know, no different than prescribing a medication, what potential effect can that have both positively and negatively, um, down the road, six hours later, the next morning, and then, and then 24, 48 hours later. So, um, Initially, when I'm working with someone for the first time or I've only had my hands on them for for a few times, certainly as little as necessary as I develop a relationship and as Dan mentioned, working with Donovan for half an hour between runs, then you know what you can and can't do what you should and shouldn't do again, context matters um, going then into you know Nick's question on in the chat here you know what what is the importance of Of uh, or what's the relevance of scoring screens, whether you have a mental model in your head of of a score or you're actually scoring, I think scoring screens is knowing what that bandwidth is. What's that normative value for that sport and or for that athlete? So to your question, if someone comes in, uh, whether on the table, on the track, on the table in the medical room or in the clinic, where does that person fall under or fall into that bandwidth? Whether are they are they in the middle of it? Are they on one end? Are they on the other end? Sometimes if they are on the quote unquote core end, often or sometimes they have been training so hard that they 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 haven't had as much intervention as necessary. Sometimes when they're coming in on the positive or a high score end, or if, for example, if we intervene and we change that score higher, they might move well, but they have lost what they needed for their sport. So I think that's where the importance of that normative value of that or that 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 scoring screening, whether it be a mental score or actually writing down a certain number, comes into play so um you know when i when i intervene if i if i don't know the athlete very well or i've only had certain instances with them certainly as little as necessary and then i ask them i'll more often than not follow follow up with giving them drills that they can get them actively on their own to to lock or to stamp or to press save on the computer to allow them to um reorganize themselves after my intervention back to what their normative movement
0: is. Um, Kelly, I'm curious... if we take it out of the physical realm in, in the sense of the, how the athlete moves and we take it into more of the, call it the psychosocial realm of what they're feeling, what they're, how they've come in, their, their energy levels, all these kinds of things. Um, how do you start to recognize, in essence, when you're doing your screen slash assessment that perhaps the loading or the training program that they're injected into um, is maybe too much for them or it's causal to whether it's injury fatigue stress uh, all these different things that they're dealing with or uh, tissue tension etc and how do you then um, marry that with if you're not the one uh, you know describing the training how do you have that call it intervention conversation um, to, to make change with the coach or the the person that you're working with together to to better that athlete's preparedness.
1: Ah, such a good question. You know, again, one of the things that I'll you know say is a weakness of of the traditional physio approach is that there's very little time someone has very little intervention time and in that time we may be trying to put out fires or tamp down, you know, raging, you know, burning fires. And there's not a conversation to talk about sleep and feeling safe and self-actualization. So I've started calling that collection of behaviors base camp. And I'm like, look, at some point in the program, we're going to have to talk about non-exercise activity and walking. We're going to have to talk about, you know, mindful practice and how you're eating and, and all of those things. And ultimately, what we want people to appreciate is that there, we do always have a tightly coupled input-output matrix because if an athlete shows up and they suck today because they were slow, they couldn't generate force, they weren't quick, whatever the mechanism is of understanding – there's only a finite number of reasons in there. It's either the volume is too hard and the session cost was too high. They didn't sleep or nutrition or stress or some aspects going on. So we're, coaches are really clever at really understanding those behavior inputs and outputs. Where it gets more complicated, of course, is understanding you know, why someone is having pain. Right. And what I want to appreciate is that most of the time when we're people are initiating conversations, I'm going to say most of the time it's because an athlete has some kind of pain or as we define injury as No longer able to perform my job on the team, can't do my role, can't occupy my role in society, can't train. Those are injuries, and we sort of have a different sort of you know cascade mechanism flow chart for those people who are now injured, aka can't generate enough force to do a track workout. It's not even a B or a C plan. It's a it's a hey, we have something raging. But what I want to appreciate is that one is If this is the first intervention we've ever had, we're having these base camp conversations, that needs to happen, that has to happen. We have to have a model to be able to track that and follow up on that. Secondarily, I just want to remind everyone that people are super durable, and they have been compensating and running this way for a long time. And one of the things that we're trying to do is not just begin these interventions around positional restoration, positional competency. When an athlete is on fire or is starting having pain, I feel like that's so far down. And, and there's so many multifactors related to stress and training volume and sleep and travel that really can sensitize someone. What I wanna do is begin a conversation around positional competency and restoration of baseline positions. So in our language, we just happen to speak in archetypes. And what we've identified is, look, do you have normative range? Does your hip flex to 120, or 130 degrees? Yes or no, one or zero. And because if you hasn't, why aren't we having this conversation now in your high level sport when we haven't had this conversation to improve your position, restore your position in the training language up to this point. So at some point we're going to initiate a set of behaviors and that may be a few interventions that are you know satellites to the, the main event that we're doing. And we're just gonna move the tanker one degree and one degree. And because that athlete is then warming up dynamically, they're gonna use it. And because they're in the gym, training they're going to use it and so we have less of hey i just pushed on a whole bunch of stuff and i don't know what you're going to do today and then put the athlete out into the world and boom they explode that's that's less sort of a a ideal model for us and a more ideal model has been hey we're going to be nudging that tanker towards normalcy towards full competency as part of the feature of the program not in reaction to an athlete who suddenly has new onset pain and an achilles
0: Mm. If I take it out of the pain context uh, over to Jamie for a second, when you've had an athlete who comes in, you have these, you're always having dynamic conversations about what they need to do. And, you know, you take the diver as an example, maybe there's a particular posture they have to get in for a new dive or a position they haven't been able to actually acquire, you know, how go, Just talk through kind of your process with that athlete, how you talk about what we're going to try to change and how they're going to link that maybe into the dives they do that day or the things that they're going to do beyond your clinical you know,
3: intervention. Well, it, it actually doesn't have much to do with my clinical intervention. It's just a really good conversation. Um, I think that's one of the things that um, I think our athletes appreciate with what we do is we really try and understand where they do come from. Maybe we don't get the chance to talk with their coaches because they're just coming in as their own. Sort of athlete trying to be good with their body. And um, so it's going to be a sit down and say, show me some video of what you do. Show me the way you move. What is it you want me to do? Maybe show me video of what you think is ideal. Um, Also, understanding that when they describe it to you back to Kelly's point and even Jeff's like their understanding of what they're doing in their language they choose might be different than the language you choose. So there's going to be maybe a need to understand where they're coming from. um, And also perhaps even having that chance to talk with their coach and saying, what do you want to get out of them and what are they understanding about what they need to do because there is this expectation and understanding sort of interpretation part of it that is also very important and I think you know to Kelly's point when we do want to have something where we're going somewhere it's like you're chopping away at the sculpture we're not trying to fix everything in the first thing what we're doing is we're going to chip away and we're going to say okay you're at x place This is where you presently are. This is our picture. We know we want to get you to Y place, but there's this amount of gap. So what I foresee and what I I find um, I get feedback on a lot is I'm, Um, my athletes appreciate when I give them the milestones that are required to go from point A to point B. And I think that's where my strength of being a coach could be is to be giving them that vision. And then it's not them holding on to a time, say, like it needs to be done in the next three days. It's like, it's like, it might not get done in the next three days, but you need to show me this first before we even get to the next step and the next step. And so I think, understanding where they're at and where they are, where's the gap analysis, being able to define those milestones and understanding with them saying, do you agree? Do you understand where I'm going from? Do you see where maybe this is what you're doing in your everyday that could be pulling away from that? If we alter this, that could be helping promote it. That would be sort of my process as I would go through.
1: Nice. There are two things I'd love to just dovetail in there if I may go for it. Because, one of the things is where are we in the season, right? So if we're in the season sports specific training, the goal of all the other correlate accessory support work is to make the athlete better at their job during this time. And there's no other, other goal. We're, we're identifying minimums. Here's enough intervention to keep the athlete from compensating for leaking or, you know, these movement viruses like that. That's really what we're trying to do there. When we move out of that season, then we can be into a little bit more sports preparation where we can open up the the interventions a little bit. We can chase a little bit more range of motion. We can chase better sort of baseline capacities going to the next season. So that is very much on my mind. Where am I? how this athlete already has a plan. How can I be nutritive and support that plan to give the athletes better positions to the things that their coaches think they need to be able to do. Then when we're out of season, we can really start to chase and slow down and, and open up that scope of work a little bit more because the goal then during sports preparation is to reconfigure the body out of these asymmetrical things. Look, if you're a sprinter and you always start in the same way, you're going to be asymmetrical. If you're a pole vaulter and, your top hand is in one hand. You're always going to be asymmetrical. So, some of what we're trying to do then is min- minimize what's our minimum dose, so that we can get the athlete to perform the most work with the least amount of compensation and win their sport. And then during sports preparation phase, we can chase some of those bigger kind of chunks down because it less matters less, and the training volume is less.
0: Nice, um, Dan. I'm curious from your from your perspective. Oh, oh, I don't know. I'm getting a backflow. Um, the uh, the idea of ideal versus real, like um, and, and realistic in in the working paradigm idealistically we'd love to have this situation where you've got coach you've got and you guys have tried to create that model at altus coach is intersected with therapist is intersected with strength conditioning practitioner everybody's talking the same language everybody's on the same page that doesn't always happen in in the realities of athlete construct and I would just like to know what your advice to the, as a, as a coach to the clinical practitioner in, in their marriage with you, if they're not always in your space all the time um, and they've, they've been, they're taking your athlete and now working with them to try to help you. What do they need to do to, to create a, a po- positive relationship with you and to sort of connect with what you're doing from a screening perspective and, and improve that marriage, so to speak.
4: Me
3: I think you're still on mute there, Dan. Yeah.
4: There Sorry. Uh, for me, it's a never-ending educational process. Like, are, are we speaking the same language? Are we identifying the same hierarchical issues that we're attacking? So education and debrief process, I think we undersell debriefing. So those talks after practice or after a session or after a training cycle, can we build structure that promotes deeper, more layered communication about the big rocks and where we're at in this journey? And, you know, like Kelly was saying, in season, we nudge, but off season, can we make a bigger push but that all circles back. Are we speaking the same language? Are, are we sharing the latest research and literature and gold standard being utilized by people you know, in similar fields? But it, it circles back to me is it continuals? Refinement of the debrief process to improve communication processes and identify gaps in understanding or communicating. So, so many times the athlete will come in and say X, Y, and Z. The clinician says it's this, the coach says it's Y. You know, and it ends up being a blame game. It's a circle game. Like, no, it's on the S&C guy. They're blowing it. No, it's, it's the therapist. No, it's the chiropractor. He, he did this crazy adjustment before this session. No, it's the, the athlete's lifestyle. So it's just a big circle game. And if the debrief process is defined and layered, then that noise is reduced, in my opinion. Well,
0: I would be uh, remiss if I didn't finish with the uh, the man, uh, Dan Paff, as our culmination of this uh, 45 minutes. Uh, Kelly, thank you very much. It's great to see you again, sir. Again, Jeff, as well. Thank you very much. Jamie, thank you. Thank you, Dan. I hand it back over to Nick. I think they're segueing into the next session. And uh, hopefully after all this COVID, our paths will cross face-to-face one of these days. So thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at KingOpain and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de saint Rome.